You are listening to the Chug and Chat Season Two. Two. Season two. We are your hosts, Mo. And this. Hello, everybody. Hello. As you notice, we still have the same disjointed intro song. So all I'm of you attached out there. to it now. I'm attached <laughs> to it now. Like I feel like it, and it's changed a little. Like it's had a little bit of an evolutionary process throughout. I know. This what whole. if we took every single one from every episode <gasps> we've had so far and like strung it together? It'd be like some weird, creepy horror music. <laughs> oh my god! It would be like it would be like our album that we're gonna make. Let's <laughs> tell them about our album. oh my god so last night we were texting about you know the terrible state of the universe and whatnot and just basically feeling pretty horrible by now especially like just given everything I mean I don't even have to tell you just literally everything that's going on just open any news source and you'll understand what you're talking about yeah And, and Mo was like yeah, this shit sucks. Like, basically, like, Empathy in Trump's America, our album title. And I was like, oh, my God, that is the most brilliant title. Um, And, you know, we were just talking about how it sucks to be an empath and how it's, like, really difficult to feel so many strong emotions about everything happening to all of the marginalized people out there. Um, and so then we decided that it would be a good idea to just have an album called Empathy in Trump's America and have it just be like song after song for like 10 hours of just one long <laughs> dial tone. <laughs> like, where is it? It's so not funny, but it's where so funny. It? Where's the empathy? I don't see it. <laughs> uh... <laughs> uh... So on the pod today, um, in happier news, on the pod today, um, my very dear friend, Laurel Butler, um, she came on for an interview and she's just so fucking rad, you guys, like so pumped, Um, so excited to share that with you later on and so excited to share this season with you. It's going to be so awesome, you guys. We are so excited. Um, I keep saying you guys, like, please listen. Is someone out there listening? Anyone? anyone. Are you there, you guys? It's Morgan. (laughs) Does anybody get that reference? All right, thanks. Anyone? (laughs) Still anyone? (laughs) No? Okay. Anyone? Anyone. Um, But yeah, we have some really incredible interviews. We started talking on our last episode. If you have not listened to it yet, um, we did, like, a little awesome thing on Mother's Day. It was really fun to put that together. Um, Yeah, it was so much fun. liked it. My mom did, too. She really liked it, which was, like, she thought it was really funny that I talked about her having Thor-like strength. Yeah. And I was like, well, you did. It was scary. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm still scared of you, Mom. (laughs) My mom was like, thanks for not revealing too much. (laughs) Oh, appropriate. Appropriate response to that podcast. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) um, But, yeah, so we we talked a little bit about, like, how this season's going to work. So we're going to do half of these um, awesome interviews with people that we know, people who we are going to meet through this podcast, which is fucking awesome. And um, the other half, we're going to do, like, uh, some of us just, like, talking to each other about things we feel and things we like. And and we're going to call it, I don't even know if I can do it again. True can we... Confessions! <laughs> yeah. It's, we can't stop singing True Confessions, like, sister, sister. And it's, I think, like, I just hope we're not violating any copyright shit. Like, if anybody ever gets mad at us. I think that it's fair use when you change the words, because then it's just, like, a parody. Yeah, and it's just a few notes. 
<laughs> anyway. We're just borrowing it. You should be flattered. We're like getting We're defensive. Just... <laughs> Let me borrow that jingle. Let me just You're sing not it even to the tune using of sister, it. sister because <laughs> it makes me feel like I want to just open up to our know. audience. You know, know what I'm saying? And yeah. to you, Morgan. Oh. <laughs> so how much did Laurel open up to you in your amazing interview with her? Uh- Oh my God, so much. She talked all about um, her, the band that she is the lead singer of. Um, it's also like a performance art project um, called Cassandra. And they're just fucking awesome. And there's she gives all the information about where to find them on the interwebs. Um, you got to give them a listen. They're so good. They are like the feminist rock like pop power ballad band like of the resistance i just am obsessed with them right now so freaking cool yeah which if you had to pick a feminist cocktail to go with their music what would you pick oh oh god oh you're springing this on me right now that is i am i was (laughs) unprepared I'm springing what, it. Like, what, what's the first cocktail? one that comes to mind? Oh, I don't know that many feminist cocktails. Is it like, um, you know, like punky? Like you're having a beer like straight up? Are you having feel, like a pickle shot? Pickle I feel shot? like I'm having like, I feel like I'm having like a finely like, like a well-balanced like bourbon cocktail that's got like an edge, but it's also yeah. like real sophisticated. Like silky smooth and sophisticated, but like yeah. badass. Yeah, like a Manhattan with the, with the kind that they like beat the or, or like a um beat the they shit beat like the of- yeah <laughs> no sorry. the kind that they, <laughs> that's really aggressive <laughs> the kind that they that they put an egg white in have you ever had a Manhattan that has Ooh, that yeah those are so good. like kind of all frothy and- yeah so like yes. the Galhattan the, the Galhattan <laughs> yeah the I love it. I love you it. know because because you know, it can't be Manhattan it could be the Manhattan. Oh, on fire. That's it. That's it right there. (laughs) All right. All right. Yeah. So what kind of stuff are we going to do for true confessions? Um, So we're going to do everything from us talking about um, marriage and the modern woman to um, we're going to do a really great one on Planned Parenthood um, and sharing some stories from our listeners about their experience at Planned Parenthood. I know. I'm so excited for that one. That's going to be really awesome. Um, We're we're going to talk this. This one's going to get so real, Liz. The one um, we're going to talk about, like, what does it mean to be a young woman with dreams? Be them... um, uh, or be they, be they, I don't know, be whatever the- I'm trying to say, be them, be they, thus. be thus, um, uh, like career dreams or, um, you know, artistic dreams, artistic visions and stuff like that. And we're going to kind of share the stories of our, um, journeys through college and, and, you know, as artists and all of that sort of stuff. And that one's going to be like, that one's going to get real, real. Um, yeah, I'm just really, really excited. And talking about like, can or should millennial feminists have kids? Is that something that, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, we're just really, we're going to, and in those, we're going to share some really cool shit that we've been reading, yo. Really cool and shit. Really cool shit. And, um, <laughs> and, and yeah, and just like sit down and talk to each other. It's going to be really cool. I think we should just like put out in the universe that if anyone out there is listening and wants to message us on Facebook or get in touch with us about any of the topics of true confessions that we just gave you a sneak preview about, 
we will totally feature you because oh my god yes please the conversation more awesome yes please and everything you can also put bring something in that's like this needs to be anonymous because we do our our planned parenthood section is going to have a fair amount of of um stories that will will remain anonymous so if you feel like you want to share something but you don't want to necessarily attach your name to it we totes get that so we will respect that even though your name may show up of course on a facebook message yeah (laughs) that's true yeah we know you have to share your name maybe initially or you can email us at um, Liz at chugandchat.com and also Mo at chugandchat.com. We also have chugandchat at gmail.com. I mean, the choices are really endless. So there's a lot of choices, you guys. A lot yes. of choices. Smoke signals, you know, yeah. hat carrier messages. I yeah. So except puppies just in general <laughs> yeah i mean you could like come to my house if you wanted to i mean that'd be weird because i'd wonder how you knew where i lived but i'd, I'd get creepy, over that creepy, yeah be creepy, creepy don't invite strangers to your house stranger danger man St- sorry sorry don't come to my house okay. okay speaking of i'm potentially planning a trip with my two sisters from another mista they're like the girls that i grew up with from once once i was a zygote yay and they are sisters and they group texted me today and you know long story short we're trying to plan this trip and so one sister texted the other sister and was like yo what's your address and she was like who is this third person on this text message i'm not just gonna give out my address and i was like it's liz and she was like oh my god and then she shared her address but i was like especially since she's a little younger than me you know it was like closest i got maybe to little sister status like yeah it's like i'm proud of you girl you didn't get right good looking out random stranger i appreciate that (laughs) good looking out well you know who's not a stranger is laurel butler and she is no stranger to a lot of things um we, I mean, with that, that was like, an excellent segue, right? <laughs> so good. Just building segues. Um, yeah, with that, you guys listen to this amazing interview. We're really excited to share it with you. Boom. Okay, we love you all. Bye. 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 But not. Don't hang but up. But not. Bye. Don't hang up. Bye. Okay. So hello, we'll do it. hello, uh, everyone hi, baby. out there. Hi. I'm so excited to have you on, everybody. I would like to welcome to the pod Laurel Butler. She is a friend of mine from college when she was in grad school in the University of New Mexico. Represent, represent, five hundred five. Yes, she is an activist in the LA area. The lead singer of Cassandra, and I just have to read you this this whole like paragraph of what Cassandra is, you guys, because it's fucking incredible. (laughs) Cassandra is a concept, a performance project, an experimental theater work, an incubator of collective practice, a feminist action, a cultural impact, a space for creative participation, a vehicle for radical social justice ideas to be aesthetized in a fiercely feminine way, a spectacle, an art event, and an educational activist project. Like, holy fuck balls, is that awesome? (laughs) general badass we want to do all the things so you know like Whitney Houston says we're every woman or Chaka Khan or whoever just like put it all together in one place and make it all fit right I love that it's so amazing (laughs) so I mean the first thing I just want to ask you is like tell me about what you're doing right now tell me about you know your role in the resistance and you know what how Cassandra's a part of that just tell me about your life Ooh, I love that question I just got home from the thrift store where I bought a bunch of coffee costumes for Cassandra, a lot of like shiny jackets and like fringy attire that we can wear when we go on tour because we're touring this summer. Um, 
And so that's like the immediate context of my life. In the larger, broader context, I mean, uh, it's really been a shit show, right? The last six months have been an incredible shit show. Uh, But I feel like Cassandra was positioned to to contribute to that conversation from the get-go, from the genesis of the project, which was way back in 2014 when I first moved to Los Angeles. I knew I wanted to start a band and I knew I wanted it to be called Cassandra, mostly because of the babe from Wayne's World, who I've sort of idolized since I was a kid, right? But I didn't actually know anything about Cassandra, the Greek mythological figure. I was, I was like, just going to say that. Nerd. Yeah. I thought that that might have been what you named it for, but that's fascinating. A hundred percent not. I, she wasn't even on my radar until Rebecca Solnit wrote this article in Harper's Magazine. I'm, I'm like really obsessed with Rebecca Solnit and have been for a lot of years. And Ewan and I made a piece of theater based off of one of her writings. She's really inspirational. And that same fall, when I moved to LA and I started recording songs, I got this Harper's in the mail from my dad. And she had written an article called Cassandra Among the Creeps. And it was so brilliant. It was all about the way that Cassandra, this ancient mythological prophetess, um, was cursed by the god Apollo to never be believed. And so everyone gaslit her and told her she was crazy. And Rebecca Solnit, she's so smart, made this correlation between that and modern day allegations of rape and sexual assault on college campuses, Anita Hill, Bill Cosby, right? And this idea that women who are testifying are made to believe that they're crazy. There's a narrative of their own, um, there's a skepticism, right, about their credibility. And as soon as I read that article, I was like, oh, Cassandra is an anti-rape activist project and I didn't even know it and it was the kind of thing not to be too like LA witchy and weird but I went back to the songs that I was writing that were kind of like you know flowing out of me in that inscrutable artistic way that you like don't understand sometimes when you're making a work and I listened to the lyrics and they were all about that in some way they were all about women and the forces that were preventing them from being able to access their full power, right? Oh my God. Um, Yeah, it was really profound. And so then next year, the following year, uh, 2015, we released an EP. I pulled together some women who I wanted to perform with. We got some major gigs down here in LA. We performed at Red Cat at the Walt Disney Concert Hall. We started writing grants, doing all this stuff. And it just sort of got a momentum of its own. Um, because I think that this idea of, oh, how can I explain it? It's sort of the idea of the truth and what is the truth and who actually has the right to write the narrative of the truth is really contentious when you're talking about social justice, right? I mean, it's super fucking contentious right now, right? Like who's writing the story of what is true? It's like truth has just flown out the window entirely. You know Absolutely. what I mean? It's well, and then like what individual truths do we as as people hang on to as our personal truths that aren't necessarily the truths of others? And how do we kind of incorporate that into the larger truth of being human? Yes. Like, yeah, yeah, yep, exactly. Yes. And the personal is political, you know, to like sing the praises of this second wave feminist axiom. When you think about the personal being political, you realize that there's this there's this conversation between personal truths and larger systemic truths. Mm-hmm. And we also moved to LA right when um, 
the Ferguson riots were happening. It was right in the aftermath. Like the night that we arrived in LA was the night that Michael Brown was killed. And oh, wow. so these ideas of uh, Michelle Alexander, you know, the, the really brilliant prison abolitionist who wrote the new Jim Crow yes. gave this great speech that year where she said something like, what is the truth? Is the truth that the suspect had his hands up or no? Is the truth that the officer weighed, waited three seconds or five seconds before firing the weapon? Like, is that the truth or is the truth that one in four African-American men are gonna go to jail in their mm -hmm. lifetime? Is the truth that there are more African-American men under the control of the prison industrial complex now than we're enslaved under slavery? Like, do you know what I mean? When we drill into the minutia, are we obscuring these like larger systemic oppressions that actually is like where the conversation needs to go. Yes. And you actually know? like that, I mean, first of all, that book, The New Jim Crow is just, I finished it a few weeks ago nice. and it just absolutely, I mean, I, I just, I like needed a minute. I needed a really long minute to even yeah. process how I felt about it. It was so, I was so disgusted with myself that I didn't know any of these things. So all of you out there, if you've not read this book, you have got to read, like drop what you are doing right now and mm -hmm. go get this book and read it because it is, it's one of those pieces, especially being a, a growing up privileged white woman reading these things. I was like, oh my, like mm -hmm. where the fuck have I been? you start to see it everywhere yeah right once you become politicized around this like critical literacy of policing of surveillance of the judicial system of mass yes. incarceration of like the co cultural codes we've inherited of like who is a criminal and why once you like take the i don't know what it is in the matrix the red pill the blue pill once yeah. you start to see through <laughs> through that lens you realize how insidious it has sort of permeated our culture. You know, like mass incarceration operates on a system of disappearing people, making people invisible, silencing people. But once you start to read the literature and it becomes visible, you can't not see it everywhere. Right. And then you realize how you've been implicit in that by not, by refusing to recognize something that's happening right in front of you yes. as... Yeah. So, I mean, this brings me to my next question, and this is sort of a loaded one, So, but I'm, I'm really excited to hear what your response is. Sure. What do you think the place of the white woman is in not only the resistance, but in social justice and where, like, where we are going and how can we... Um, you know, what is our place? Like, where do we start? <laughs> That's right? such a huge question. I, right? I know. Congratulations for asking it. Because, <laughs> you know, because it's the quest. I mean, it's it's a big question right now. Um, and I'm, I'm going to do my best to take a stab at it. Note for all the listeners, I did not see any of these questions beforehand. So no. I'm, I'm rolling off of the, you know, the skin of my teeth. Um, my first answer was to um, to shut up, to shut the fuck up when we're in spaces of um, people of color and especially women of color who could either inhabit the leadership role, who could take the microphone, who could um, educate us about something even though that is not their obligation that's not their duty they're not that's not their role um but if you find yourself in an organizing space in a learning space in a political space uh where there's a person of color especially a woman of color who can step up i think the role of the white woman is to step back and i think that 
humility is a huge part of that. And something I've been thinking about a lot is white culture. Again, going back to this idea of disappearance, we don't talk a lot in this country about how there are really specific, uh, unique characteristics of the culture of whiteness. We're all like swimming around like fish in the water of whiteness. And so we kind of can't see the forest for the trees, not to mix my metaphors, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I feel like when you look critically and pull back and look at white culture, you see all of these symptoms of it, like um, perfectionism, for mm-hmm. example. And I really think that, especially this year, a lot of the organizing that I've done has been um, just trying to show up and do the best I can in a messy and imperfect way. And that doesn't mean that I'm careless, right? I'm still trying to be as thoughtful and like enter spaces with as much integrity and critical literacy as I can. But to know that perfectionism, the more I undo my own desire for perfectionism, the more I'm actively dismantling white supremacy as it exists inside of me and my own psyche and my own psychology and my own emotional makeup, right? So if I go to uh, a deportation defense training, right, with a local immigrant rights group that's run by queer undocumented youth to do like uh, rapid raid response and Mm -hmm. and, uh, stuff like that, And the training, like maybe there are moments where it doesn't feel perfect. And you know, you and I grew up in the theater. We're producers, we're type A ladies. So we want all the post-its to be in the right places and we want everything to look really great and everybody walks out of there feeling like they had the perfect experience, right? Like that's how we're trained. And activism doesn't work that way. No. You know what I mean? And so that's something that I've really been trying to pay attention to is, I can bring my perfectionism to other spaces, like my work as a professor at UCLA. I can design a syllabus that has like that perfectionist thing to it. But in my activism, I have to be okay with things that are organic, things that flow. Um, And then I think the other answer to the question about the role of white women right now is to collect our people and do what we can to mediate that thing that I said earlier about how it's actually not the role of people who are the most impacted by oppressive systems and systems of injustice right now. It's not the role of the folks who are the most vulnerable to sort of teach us what to do. Right. Um, That I think that something that I try to do is to, with as little um, impact as possible, um, learn as much as I can about what do the prison abolitionists on UCLA campus really want to see happen in terms of like, you know, starting up a prison education program? What do the, um, these queer undocumented folks in LA who are organizing for deportation defense, what do they want to see happen from allies? And then I go to my white friends who, who are coming at me and being like, how do I get involved? I feel like I need to do something. I don't know what it is. And I help create those spaces to minimize the labor of the people who are busting their ass on the front lines yes. amidst all of their trauma. So that's kind of a long-winded answer. But I think that those two things, the like stepping back when you're in spaces of people of color and stepping up when you're in spaces of white people feels like one way that I have inhabited my 
you know, demographic role at this time. That was like the perfect answer. Like, <laughs> oh my God, perfectionism like, again. <laughs> like, no, but I mean, I, it, it was, it was perfect in all the ways that it's like, it's, it, 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 that question is very much like, oh my God, I don't know, but I'm trying. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, totally. And I mean, the idea too, I mean, go, like that perfectionism, a very large piece of what, of what this podcast even has been for Liz and I, this journey that we're kind of on right now is not kind of like full blown obsessively mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. is you have to come to the table admitting that you're wrong first. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the hardest piece. Um, for for a lot of the people that you know are are trying to figure out what to do here and how to help and how to be like not just a shitty white person who's like eh they'll sort it out right you know and and to be involved without being like teach me I don't know like yeah. I don't know how to eh. so I mean yeah. I, like that certainly was even the hardest part for me is looking at it and going okay well I have to admit that I've I've been completely imperfect in the idea that that I. Like even thought that I was perfect. Like, oh, I understand racism. Oh, I understand. And I'm not, I I don't, you know, I'm not a racist person. So therefore it's not a problem for me or my community or anybody else around me. Right, right. Oh, absolutely. And I think, I mean, this is, it's going to sound like I'm making a leap and I actually think that they're really intrinsically related. So, you know, when you and I were making theater together in New Mexico, all of those years ago, when you were in college and I was in grad school, we did a lot of clown training Mm -hmm. that was like a huge part of the technical training that we were doing the ideological the performative and the whole idea behind being a clown is that you show up and you fundamentally don't know you're you're stupid you know and you don't understand what's going on in the world of the play you know and that might mean that sometimes you're clumsy but it also means that you're paying attention that you're earnest that you are like humble and okay when people like call you on things, you know? And I think that that training has actually informed a lot of the way in which I show up in spaces. Um, I don't know. Yeah, sort of like ready to feel dumb and to feel like that is okay. Right. It's going to have discomfort to it. And I think that that's actually a huge part of the spiritual project right now is to understand that an aversion to discomfort is also a symptom of white privilege and white supremacy. Oh, absolutely. That if something feels uncomfortable, we're like, avoid it. That's bad. That's an indicator that you're like on the wrong path. And it's like, maybe that's an indicator that you're growing. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, like, you know what's actually really uncomfortable? Experiencing racism. That's yeah. actually uncomfortable. You know Living what I mean? Your, having to live your life in a way that, that like, I can't even begin to, like, I can read everything that there is to read on this subject and have absolutely no knowledge of what it is to walk it. Right. And, and when you start to think about that, like, yeah, you know what would be really uncomfortable? Like, that existence. That yeah. would be really uncomfortable. And so I, I, that's, that's, yeah, that's a really interesting thing to, to have said. Like, when you, when you start to break down, you know, what it actually is to be yeah. a white person uncomfortable because so many people just aren't right they just they just don't have to be if you are a cisgendered white person most of the time you can avoid things like that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's what's so gross like that's that's what's you know you have to seek out that opportunity to grow and that's sort of what 
Um, and that's the big question, right? Like, how do we how do we inspire everybody to do that? How do we get everybody to come along? And I think that just goes that feeds into what you were just saying about, you know, what you what the white woman's role is, or what the white person's role is in social justice right now, which is to gather your people and to give each other a space to figure out what we don't know, mm -hmm. and then start to educate ourselves on what we think we might know, mm -hmm. and then observe and listen to figure out the rest and at least figure out how we can be supplemental support to the narrative that is the key narrative right now. It's no longer our narrative. Right, right. Oh, that's absolutely true. Yeah, this idea like, you know, the whiteness has authored the story for a long time. We don't actually like need any more of that authorship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how can we pay attention to like the rewriting of a different story? Um, yeah. And I think that uh, I also have needed to figure out uh, this funny dance between compartmentalization and integration. That mm -hmm. on the one hand, the work that I do as an activist and an organizer, especially in the anti-racist movement, the work that I do with Cassandra as a feminist performance artist and musician, and the work that I do as a professor at UCLA teaching classes about arts education, especially in correctional institutions. I say correctional institutions with quotes around it, right? Because that's like, you know, a right. ridiculous nomenclature. Um, yeah. That all of those things are deeply integrated and connected in terms of my belief in creativity and social justice and performance and you know they're all sort of different facets of the same practice but I have to compartmentalize them to an extent because I also like I'm a Leo rising. I like attention. I like to take <laughs> up a lot of space. You know what I mean? Totally. And like in a lot of my activist spaces that's not appropriate mm -hmm. in cassandra it's super appropriate because people come to rock shows to see people i think kim gordon said in her book girl in a band she was like people will pay a lot of money to see someone believe in themselves so i can get up there and like do my hair big be glittery be large you know and shiny yes. and it's appropriate and then in the classroom sometimes it's appropriate for me to take up a lot of space if I'm, you know, lecturing in a way that's meaningful. And then other times it's appropriate for me to really step back so that my students can construct knowledge in their own sort of facilitated ways. Sure. So it's like knowing that, knowing yourself and what you need to feel like you're being authentic in the world and finding spaces where that's okay instead of having it like manifest in spaces where it is not actually okay. You know what I mean? It's taking oh a long time to figure that out. Well, yeah, I think that's the journey forever because then who you are and being authentic to yourself is changing all the time as well. Totally. That's yeah. really that's really interesting. So I want to move on to my next question and it's kind of it's sort of in the same vein of what we've been talking about and this is another like super large question. Ready. So forgive me. No, nope, I'm ready. Brace you. I mean, you know. <laughs> so so how can art, um, be it visual, be it vocal, be it performance, be a tool for the feminist movement and for the resistance? Whew, these questions, girlfriend. I know, but so you, good. I mean, you can, I like, I, I really thought on these because I was like, <laughs> I'm just, I'm getting ready to talk to like major queen status. I've got to come in guns a blazing. Oh my God. They are blazing. I mean, this is one of the central fundamental questions of 
you know, the field that I'm situated in, you know what I mean? Like yes. not a week goes by in my, in my life that I'm not listening to someone grapple with this question. You know what I mean? I mm -hmm. remember doing a workshop with Anna Devere Smith a couple years ago, and she um, was having some actors reenact an interview between Mike Wallace and Lorraine Hansberry. And he sort of asked her that fundamental question too. And she was like, you know, I don't know if the audience members who come see A Raisin in the Sun are going to walk out of that theater feeling like that work of art satisfied their need to see social justice and yeah. now they're going to have less impetus or impulse to try to manifest it in their quote-unquote real lives or whether it's going to be galvanizing to them. I can't know. All I can do is like make the work, you know? And so yeah. that's one perspective from the last that. century. Yeah, it's just like we're all really wrestling with this idea. And yeah, I think that idea of is making art about social justice a place to put it so that it is sort of contained and the status quo can continue to function? Or is it a place to rehearse it so that we can transfer those ways of thinking and being, etc., into real life behaviors that can catalyze systemic change and actually shift the status quo? And I just really believe in the latter, man. I really yeah. believe that at the end of the day, culture is, and this is not, this is a false uh, dichotomy, but I think that culture is stronger than politics. Mm -hmm. And I think that the semiotics that we read, especially, I mean, the reason that I trained in dance and theater, but ended up becoming like a, you know, a pop musician is because I think that those are the people who have the most power to shape the narrative. And when you see representations of like radically empowering shine theory feminist sisterhoods, that starts to impact the culture, you know? Mm -hmm. And this is like such a shitty example because like, I don't like Taylor Swift. I think she's whack. I think she's done a bunch of things that are like, not okay. Also Agreed. like I'll rock out to like a song of hers. If I'm like, you know, if I've had a few drinks, like it's fine. Oh my God. Me too. Right. Right. It's like, you I know, will sing along in the car. Totally. She's got so many problems and also like wildest dreams. It's great. I love it. It so, is a good song. <laughs> so yeah. So the music and the person are distinct, but as a person, like there was that moment with her where her big narrative was, look at all of the powerful female friends I have. Mm -hmm. And that was still problematic because all of those powerful female friends w were like, you know, reinforcing traditional beauty standards. And, the, you know, the classism yes. is just like out, out of control. But if you just hone in on that one specific issue of promoting, empowering female relationships in a collective, I think that that's major. I think that that has an effect on the way that young women think about female friendships that shifts the paradigm away from the cattiness and competition that mm -hmm. we've been socialized to believe needs to be a fundamental part of female friendships. And that, I think, is how culture shift happens, you know, is by That's so fascinating. representing yeah. that. And I'm not, you know, like attributing the contemporary pop feminist movement to Taylor Swift. I'm just saying that it reads, you know, if it's like... Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I think that when, when you as an artist like involve other folks 
in inhabiting the kinds of spaces and the kinds of codes and the kind of language, especially language is so critically important at this time that really gets at the heart of like social justice and resistance mm -hmm. work. I think that people then habituate themselves to those kinds of codes and that kind of language. And there's a mind shift and there's a culture shift. I think it's powerful. I think it, you know, at the end of the day, you're also in power. that position. You're also in that position too that people are coming to you for um, a commodity of some kind. Like they're coming to watch a performance so that they can either learn something or maybe they just want to be entertained or something like that. But they're sort of they're sort of primed, um, mm -hmm. you know, for the intake of information. And it's not like you're sitting down and being like, "And this is how you should think," or it's not like a presentation. Right. It's it's like you know, I mean, it's like learning the fun way. Uh -huh. You know, I mean, yeah. if you're singing a song about social justice in, because you really think that it's a really catchy tune or whatever, right, you, right, you may or may not actually be taking some of those nuggets of information and then putting them into practice. Or, like you said, you know, if you are if you're watching people rehearse a particular action, you may very well put that into your own life in some way. And so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. being an artist is absolutely a, in, being in a position of power. And that's, I mean, I'm being a theater person, I of course am like super biased, but I, I mean, I go to watch performance to be changed. Like I, I don't right. go because I want to see something I've already seen before, or I don't go because I want to see something that like I could have watched on TV at home because it's what everybody else is watching. I go to be challenged and and right. changed by that. So yeah. that's, that's really, yeah, that's really, well, really cool. And I think, oh my gosh, you just, I mean, you've, you've nailed it. And there's so much power there that I think we have to be, I don't mean careful, like cautious. I mean, careful, like sure. thoughtful and full of care and like meticulous and nuanced in terms of the work that we create as artists to know, like, I think about myself as a young punk. I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, which is a super white and problematic town. Um, and I, I don't think that I, I think that we all sort of growing up perceived that there was this um, segregationist like aspect to the place that we lived, but we mm -hmm. couldn't put our fingers on it because it was what we had grown up in. It was what we knew. But then when we all started listening to punk rock, we were like, oh, this makes sense. Like this language, we just adapted it wholeheartedly because it seemed to resonate with an experience of dissatisfaction, of resistance, of rebellion, of whatever it was that like felt really authentic to us at that time. And there was a power there that I mean, I just ate up punk rock hook, line, and sinker, you know, mm -hmm. and allowed it to really change the way that I dressed, the way that I thought, the way that I moved through the world. And my my ideological makeup got really shifted. So I think that, you know, on the one hand, your question is about, like, what's the role of art in the resistance and the social justice movement? And so I think on the one side, you have art that's being created and how how sort of porous and permeable people are to receiving art as a catalyst for change on all these mm -hmm. levels. But then there's on the other side, 
the participatory nature of art. Like I love making things with large groups of people. I love devising collective theater. Cassandra has like dozens of members at any given time. And I think that participating in the creative and artistic space, in the creative and artistic process, I think that there's no better rehearsal for the revolution than to be in a room with a blank script, a blank canvas, a blank whatever, and take stock of like who's here and what do we have to bring to this process of envisioning something new. You know, I mean, that's that's what it is. So I think in that sense, in a process-based way of thinking, the space between art making and radical activist organizing is, I mean, it's the same skills. It's the same tools that we're bringing to the process. You know? Oh, I love it. I love that. Yeah. And now I want to get to the fun stuff. I want to know about your class. Tell me like what that is. Like if you have anything that you can suggest that comes to mind that we should be reading right now. Like totally. I just want to hear all about that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's been so, I don't want to say fun because grappling with issues of mass incarceration and the prison industrial complex is not fun. As we right. talked about with the new Jim Crow, like you got to reckon with just centuries of oppression and white supremacy and it is yes. ugly and it is gnarly and it is still here you know it is like not ancient history by any means it is a human rights crisis happening right under our noses and so i think that instead of fun i would say purposeful or clear like that's how it has felt to create the syllabus for this course i'm teaching at ucla which is um, arts programs and correctional institutions and again i I think language is really tricky and important. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about correctional institutions, we know that what we actually mean is like facilities where people are locked up, um, almost two and a half million people in this country um, existing behind bars and in cages and in boxes and in fundamentally unfree conditions. Um, mm -hmm. And that has seen this tremendously marked increase since the late 70s and early 80s as a result of the war on drugs and uh, the emergence of really high stakes economic interests in the prison boom and this country. And so simultaneous to the like extreme rise of mass incarceration in the United States, you have a response by artists and arts programs uh, to create programming for incarcerated folks and increasingly these days, which I'm really excited about, um, people who are re-entering community life after incarceration mm -hmm. or like pre-arrest diversion programs for youth. And I'm excited about those um, trends in funding and programming because that's how we intervene in the cycle of recidivism right the the cycle because we have these economic interests in this country in keeping people locked up because of the private prison industry there's um the system is structured to keep people um re-offending and right you know staying inside of the system as opposed to you know in countries like the netherlands there's a maximum of 21 years to be incarcerated. So they actually have to rehabilitate people because they're gonna transition back into the right. community. So it's just such a different, I mean, yeah, the United States is so unique in these really hideous ways. And artists are really trying to um, show up in a breadth of different ways. So the first half of this quarter that I've been teaching this class has been just looking at the landscape of programming that exists. Mm -hmm. um, to um, 
to bring creative practices into collaboration and conversation with incarcerated folks. And because I have a pretty abolitionist politic when it comes to the prison industrial complex, I've been trying to highlight artists whose agenda is uh, pretty radical and political sure. in that way. Um, and that's not the case for all um, arts programs. Um, you know, there's, uh, yeah, it kind of runs the gamut in that way. And so this other thread of the class is introducing UCLA undergraduates to a critical literacy of the judicial system to understand how these overlapping interests of um, punitive punishment, incarceration, surveillance, policing, economics have all intersected to create this tremendous crisis. Um, and so what are ways that we creatively can show up um, for this historical moment and participate in the intervention um, in that system. So it's it's been really exciting to see how many people are like not only deeply devoted to this work, but themselves have been changed by it. Yeah. Um, we've been bringing in guest speakers every week. We had the women from Dances for Solidarity Skype in one week. We had um, Professor Brian Bain, who's just a legend. He's in the School of Law and African-American Studies at UCLA now, but he started up the prison education at Columbia at Rikers and Sing Sing. He's amazing. Um, wow. We're going to have Vijay Gupta, who started the Street Symphony here in L.A., um, Kylie Schilling from the Arts for Incarcerated Youth Network, Sabra Williams from the Actors Gang, which is Tim Robbins Theater Company for Incarcerated Men here in California, like all kinds of really heavy hitters who are part of the Prison Arts Coalition, the California Arts for Incarceration or um, Arts and Corrections Network. They're having their conference here uh, in LA at LMU next month, and I'm going to present, which I'm really excited about. Oh, that's um, so cool. Yeah, and I, I just, I think that, you know how earlier we were talking about the genesis of Cassandra and how it was like all of the dots of the constellation just were there. Like the songs mm -hmm. were there, the name of the band, the Rebecca Solnit article, the political moment. It was all kind of like coalescing. I feel that same kind of like synergy or synchronicity now um, because I think people are waking the fuck up. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? To the yes. fact that this crisis is at the heart and the center of these these larger issues of, of white supremacy, of the history of race and trauma in the United States. You know what I mean? And so the fact that there is a lot of funding in the nonprofit sector going towards these kinds of interventions. There's conferences happening to develop best practices in terms of the pedagogy we use to teach incarcerated folks. And by teach, I mean like facilitate and collaborate with and create empowering spaces for learning. And legit, the fact that there are so many young people, artists and scholars, UCLA undergrads who come to me every day and are like, I want to get more involved. I want to get more involved. This feels like the important thing. And it is. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, just like everything in this post-election moment, the moment of crisis is also the moment of opportunity. And Rebecca Solnit talks about that a lot, how like there's nothing like a disaster 
to make us all come together and show up and figure out how to work together better. I know, you know, and part of that, like that statement makes me like super excited for this moment to see where it goes, to keep working, to keep fighting. But it also really depresses me sometimes yeah. that that's what it takes. Yeah, yeah, um, totally, totally. There was a an On Being interview between Rebecca Solnit and Krista Tippett, the host of On Being, the, the other podcast, your podcast number one, and that's the other <laughs> podcast. Oh, someday, <laughs> right? someday. <laughs> exactly goals and at the end of the interview Krista asks Rebecca she's like but couldn't we rise into that space of our highest potential of our most authentic humanity without the disaster and Rebecca's like I don't know <laughs> like, I know. it's really a question yeah how do we build the framework for that to be possible so that it's not like oh these things you know these things have been happening for hundreds <laughs> of years and um right in 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 so many cases are irreversible and it has you know caused irreparable damage to millions of people like oh, oh okay like let's get involved now right Right, you know, right. it's just totally, crazy. totally, and it makes me think about this discomfort conversation and how mm -hmm. I don't know. We live in a historical moment where wellness is really commodified and talked mm -hmm. about as the sort of like, you know, holy grail of human existence. Like, if you can arrive at this Zen state, that like that means you've sort of made it. And I'm like, I don't know. I kind of want to always have a little bit of an aversion to comfort because comfort feels like complacency to me. Yes. So, like if we can keep living, and I don't mean we should all be like stressed out, burned out, like disasters the way that I was for like two months after the election where I, I know, like wasn't eating or sleeping and I was I just know. Facebooking all day. That was the worst. You posted that post that really spoke to me when you were like, okay, I realized that I need to like, I, and this is like not at all what you said, but you were basically <laughs> like, I need to have a nap and eat a sandwich and I'll be back. Like, yeah, dude. Yeah. Totally. I, mean, I had just neglected my self-care 100%. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that's that's the thing too, is I think there's that delicate balance between self-care and and being, because if you're not taking care of yourself, then then you're just like worthless. Then yep. you're just, people are having to tow you behind and you can't, you can't be doing anything, you know, to, to make anything any better. You're just like, it's up to other people then to just care for you and right. that's not, you know, that's not helpful exactly no, totally. oh my god that nuanced really fine tuning the understanding that you have within yourself about is this self-care or is it denial or avoidance yes. or privilege you know what i mean or there were also moments where i was like is this self-care or is it depression like here i am mm -hmm. you know what i mean like how can you really notice and it's so like you have to really fine tune your internal barometer so acutely to be able to know thyself well enough to know when you actually are burning out and need to provide self-care for yourself. And I think that here's one of the keys for myself is knowing that self-care doesn't mean like forgetting to stay woke for a minute. Totally. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like Self-care doesn't mean let's pretend that we live in a world where shit is okay because we don't. Yeah. And it also means like it doesn't mean just not being informed for a while. Right. Just like disengaging. In certain ways, it, it does mean disengaging, but not not completely because you can't come back. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it also does mean 
that you have to sort of distill what it is that that are the nuggets of things that that you're hanging on to like mm-hmm. what what is it that you in you know what piece of this this broken system are you as a person as an activist trying to further yourself because you can't just be like and it's racism you mm-hmm. know i mean you can't you can't like just like throw out a giant term because then it's you're going to be crushed under the weight of that right right but, absolutely you know yeah. You have to sort of distill it to its tiniest form and bite off a little piece at a time. Oh my and god. And continue yeah. to further that agenda in your in your own way and figure out, you know, how to be supportive and how to be informed within the framework of that tiny little piece and then when you're ready you can like like t- jump to the next lily pad. Mhm. Mhm. That was the moment for me when I finally sort of figured out how I could make my resistance practice praxis sustainable. I call mm-hmm. it a resistance praxis because it's not like a practice. Like we actually have to do things and like totally. stay in our research practice all the time. <laughs> totally. But it was so, yeah, it was so unsustainable. You know, I got sick, like deeply sick, like every two weeks in the aftermath of the election. And then, you know, when I wasn't sick, I was just like yelling and screaming and organizing and hosting and in the streets and doing the thing all the time. And it was like, this cannot go on for four years. But then uh, Beth Pickens, who's this like really phenomenal, radical um, queer arts consultant here in LA who I worship, she uh, invited me to teach her workshop, Making Art During Fascism at the Women's Center for Creative Work. She invited me to guest teach and I was putting together the lesson plan for the workshop and I realized that I wanted to make it about sustainability and burnout prevention because that was something that I hadn't figured out myself. And I started to really think about it and I realized that, I mean, I'm a Capricorn as as is Beth. And so we like making lists. So it's like a big thing for the <laughs> Capricorn psychology. And I was like, I gotta make a list of five issues that I really give a shit about, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, um, I've always been like a an anti-racist organizer. So maybe my five issues are, you know, deportation defense, Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, um, dismantling white supremacy, and um, intervening in the school to prison pipeline. You know, like those. I just like off the top of my head. But then, sure, I have to notice what's not on that list, which is like, you know, environmental stuff not Mm -hmm. on the list. Of course, I really care about the environment, but I don't need to make that one of my primary issues because my homegirl, Sophie in Vermont, my homegirl, Allison in the Bay Area, they're on the front lines of that fight. And I know that they're fierce. And I know that that issue is number one on their top five. So I don't have to take that on because we're operating in a rhizomatic network. You know what I mean? Like ACA issues, abortion funding, all of the things that didn't end up on my list. I have like homegirls in my coven who I know are gonna, are gonna show up for that fight. And so I can, I can go deep instead of broad and hone in just like you said i can just like bite off my chunk of the of the resistance to chew on and i'm so much more effective in that way you know i also read a self-care list the other day i think it was from like 350.org or something i forget and they said know where you're gonna get your news sources from and Mm -hmm. know what you're gonna do after you intake your news and i was like whoa right like Like, what does that even mean i know it was so brilliant and again sorry to be such a theater nerd my god but it made me think about 
Richard Schechner, the like performance studies guy, he yes. talks about the performance continuum and how, yes. you know, you have a show, but what happens after the show? Mm -hmm. You know, in order for the performance to really take effect, what happens like after the show and after that? And it's the same thing when you're having a deeply effective experience, you need to figure out how you're going to metabolize that. Mm -hmm. You know, are you mm -hmm. going to read the news and then do yoga and just spend time thinking about what you just read and letting it like land in your somatic body? Are you going to read the news and then talk to your partner across the table about like, hey, I just read this thing. How do we want to show up for that part of the movement? What do you think about it? Or do you like read the news and then get in your car and get on the phone and 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 then it lands in this weird other place and you're not processing it, you know? Totally. And we can't just spend time like sitting around processing. We also have to like live our lives and yeah, and like have jobs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh, jobs and <laughs> yeah. stuff. God, the worst. Lame. <laughs> I know. I know. I was like, can't I just be famous with my podcast now? Right? Like Liz and I are always like, when can we do this full time? Because this is what really gives us life. Like this is what really fuels us. Yeah, man. Yeah. Oh, I really support that. And I also have noticed. I was just talking about this last night. I went out to dinner with two of the women in Cassandra, Gina Young, who's an incredible playwright, and Amber Hurst Martin, who just wrote its amazing one-woman show. They're both singers. They go on tour with the It Gets Better tour, traveling oh, cool. around middle America and singing musical theater for young queer youth in like Omaha. Oh. I mean, these women are the revolution, and I'm so honored to be in a band with them. And we had dinner last night, and they were both talking about how one of the outcomes of this post-election moment is that we're all getting our life through like autonomous mm -hmm. self-determining impulses to what like amber had never written a solo show and now she's like, yes, yeah. I'm going to do it. You know, G Gina's like, I'm going to start up my own theater company. You know, every, like my friend Megan, who's also in Cassandra, who you know from UNM, just yeah. started up this radical feminist business, um, marketing and distributing antiques from her hometown in New Mexico. Oh Good with for this, her. It's so beautiful. The way that all these women are like, I don't want to work for bosses anymore, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? And I think it's a direct outcome of this, of realizing that all the way up to the top, the person who's like the boss of this country is a jackass. So Absolutely. let's, how can we get free in all the ways? You and know? I'm also finding myself categorizing my free time differently. Mm. Like it was, you know, I, I don't have a whole, to me, like my recovery time is now based in, learning and watching documentaries and listening and doing all of these things that I didn't after college I was just like nope I'm done yeah. I wrote a thesis I'm over it yeah. like I don't need to read for like 19 years yeah. and you know I'm like really I'm really finding my my self-care time and my free time to be dedicated more to learning about those things that you know back to the discomfort thing to making myself uncomfortable and figuring out how to get my balance again like I'm really mm. I'm spending a lot more time with myself and figuring out how to um how to 
alter myself to not only just be a better person and a better human in general, yeah. but also like how, you know, how can I show up for these other things? How, what, what work can I do? And actually giving some thought to making the world around me, even just immediately around me, a better place, which is something that I think a lot of people are doing too, which is a really mm-hmm. beautiful thing to come out of such a dumpster fire shitstorm. Morgan, this is actually really huge, what you just said, because I feel like that is one of the tasks, especially for us white women, is to reframe mm-hmm. the self-care paradigm so that me spending a night reading Audre Lorde, reading Andrea Davis, that is self-care because right. I am like putting you know, spackle on the cracks in my soul and the shit that I have inherited, you know, in terms of the trauma of this country and this racialized system by spending time with these thinkers and these authors and these like fundamental philosophical ways of of thinking and reading the world. Like that is more a kind of self-care. It's like, I think about you know, the difference between eating spinach and eating ice cream. Like you think right. ice cream is the self-care, but actually right. after you eat it, you might feel shitty. And mm-hmm. this is not this is not some like, you know, like a, a body size related thing. I don't mean you feel shitty because of guilt, because of calories. I mean, like literally you just ate a bunch of like sugar and shit and you're like, oh, I feel bad. Whereas after I eat something nutritious, like I feel like I have reinforced my health. And mm-hmm. it's the same thing with what we take into our brains you know what i mean and it's like i'm all about like read a shitty novel whenever you want to but i feel better after i read angela davis or audrey lord and i don't try to instagram about it that's been a really important part of the thing i know it sounds trivial but like really like you know do the work and keep it anonymous Mm-hmm. Keep it your own personal and precious practice because then it'll land in such a more authentic space because then you're not performing allyship. You're not oh, performing wokeness. So you're important. actually just doing it for the sake of doing it. And in this like Instagrammed world, we have so few things that are like that. Like make your, and also be visible in moments where it's important to amplify some aspect of the movement. That's another one of those things where I think we're all fine tuning our internal barometers to understand like what part of my activism and allyship needs to be just anonymous because I don't need to like toot my own horn and trumpet it from the mountaintops. And then what parts of my activism and resistance need to be amplified because that could galvanize other people and it could raise Mm -hmm. awareness about an issue oh my god that is speaking to me so hard right now because i literally this morning like i finished um the fire next time by james baldwin cool which oh it's so good it's so beautiful so i just i I mean i could i'm gonna read it about a thousand more times yeah and um i like i i totally facebooked a quote because mm-hmm. I was like, yes. And I was like, Morgan is reading. And I, I totally did that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, and it's, and in, mm-hmm. in that moment, I didn't, I wasn't like, oh, everybody should know I read that. I was more like, everybody, like, this is, this quote changed my life. Right. Please read this right. book. You yeah. know, and so, but, but that's a really interesting way to frame that, like, to, to be able to hold things as your own. Mm-hmm. And it's up that. to us, like we're the curators of our own lives. You know what I mean? And there is something so powerful about the fact like, you know, somebody's going to look at that quote and it's going to mean something to them, mm-hmm. you know? And I think I can forget that sometimes. Like there was a moment in January where I was like, I, you know, 
guys, I got to go take a nap and eat a sandwich and I'm going to quit Facebook. And a lot of people were like, Laurel, please don't. I actually like you mean a lot to me in terms of your voice in my feed. Mm -hmm. And I think that we forget because of the way the Facebook feed operates, we forget that our feed is not the feed that everybody else sees. Like right. I have some people in my feed who are social justice warriors, oh, you know, yeah. elders and people that are younger than me who have just schooled me about this stuff for years. And so, you know, but I forget that there are other people who might like, if I repost something that one of those people has said, then that amplifies their voice. Mm -hmm. And then it has a ripple effect, you know, so I have to be really intentional about when I do that. I don't know if you can hear my dogs in the back. I totally like, having can. I this love like it. insane, like rompous. <laughs> oh my God. I love it. I have three of them and they, they regularly make appearances on the podcast because they start barking at oh, good. outside my house or something. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. They're mm -hmm. just characters now. Yeah. They're and Liz like has a cat named Guacamole and he will just randomly throw open the door to where her, the room in her house where she records oh and God, just like, it. so it's perfect. Also Guacamole. <laughs> best cat name I know, winner I know. <laughs> so i have one last question for you and that is who is your queen of the week who is giving you life this week oh my god i already um shouted her out but i'm gonna do it again um beth pickens is she's been my consultant and my life coach and my grant writer for i think since like 2013 or 14 before that we worked together at the yerba buena center for the arts in san francisco and before that she was the managing director of radar which is uh like queer literary collective in san francisco run by oh, wow. michelle t who's also like legendary author so beth now lives here in la and morgan she literally is the like guru cult leader of anyone working at the intersection of like art and radical politics and queerness and feminism here in LA. Her client list is like a miraculous roster of queens. And when they write the history of like radical feminist art in Los Angeles at the turn of the 21st century, like Beth is going to be just a major figure. Last night was her bat mitzvah literally this woman uh, like decided to become jewish her wife Allie writes for transparent and um, oh my gosh yeah i think i have a suspicion that jill soloway may have played a significant role in beth's um understanding of her own spirituality through judaism mm -hmm. so i went to her bat mitzvah party last night and it was like drag queens just owning their fierceness and singing for their lives dynasty handbag performed um it was like anybody who was anybody in the like la underground performance scene oh. was in the house it was at peter's base which is like you know this like major outpost for dance and resistance here in la and beth was just like owning the space so hard i I can't describe the number of moments in my life where that woman has reminded me of my own agency in my own liberation and the the authorship that I have over my own life narrative has been just numerous times. She through her like magical alchemy of like witchcraft and um, Capricorn acumen and just like fierce feminist badassery has helped me raise thousands of dollars in grant funding. She helped me do like a national tour of my theater work. Um, and she's just like 
the home girl. She was on Call Your Girlfriend, another the other other podcast, um, a few <laughs> weeks ago talking about making art during fascism. Um oh and, and and is just like, yeah, couldn't be smarter. So she is a hundred percent my queen of the week. Bethpickens.com is where you can like find her stuff and get a free copy of Making Art During Fascism. And like may we all be able to rise into our Capricorn excellence like Beth. Also she is hair goals and has been my hair idol for years Uh, she has this amazingly voluminous hair um so that's my like yeah last tidbit of love and affection for beth pickens and the next time you see her tell her that i don't know her but i'm obsessed with her totally will totally will so obsessed she sounds incredible (laughs) that's like but that's always my favorite part of the podcast is like hearing who like is is giving people life because i think it's so important to make sure that we not only are furthering our own um education but also lifting other people up when they're doing a really awesome thing and when they're being really awesome a hundred percent you know one of the guests at beth spot mitzvah was ann friedman the host of call your girlfriend one of the two hosts i mean not two so is the other one and um they talk a lot about shine theory this you know um idea in contemporary feminism of uh when one of us shines, we enable those around us to shine brighter, right? That shining really bright Uh in your excellence as a woman doesn't cast a shadow on anyone else. It doesn't diminish anyone's excellence. It's not like there's a scarcity of excellence in the world. We all just lift each other up. And I'm so grateful to be in sisterhood with you around that you know oh me like, too really i'm so there. glad we were, we were like reunited in the resistance it's and so i can't good. wait to see cassandra live i'm gonna get to do that all you people out there i get to do that Hell i'm really yeah. excited oh it's gonna be so good i just uh, gina delvac who produces call your girlfriend gifted me a satiny pink hooded robe cape thing oh my god uh, and i wore it last week um cassandra's producer flew out here from colorado and we were programming the beats into a trigger pad and just like getting down so hard on the choreography wearing this cape that's like my little teaser for what the tour is going to consist of it is going to be so witchy um and girl i think we're going to call it hex (gasps) i think that's the name of the tour (laughs) yeah right at first it was going to be hex the oppressor and then we were like just hex just make it hexy we're going to hex you up (laughs) oh man i'm gonna hex you up exactly you need shirts that say that and i need one immediately oh thank you okay great as soon as i get off this podcast i'm gonna get on my merch game and yeah some shirts oh that's so good well laurel (laughs) i just really want to thank you a zillion times for coming on i'm so excited that i got to talk to you about all of this pleasure it was my literal pleasure thanks so much for having me yeah so much and tell everybody where they can find cassandra stuff oh my gosh so much if you go to facebook.com slash the band Cassandra. If you go to laurelbutler.com slash Cassandra. If you go to instagram.com slash Cassandra the band uh, with underscores in between each word, we're all about it. Yeah, please find us and look for us on tour this summer. We're going to go up and down the West Coast from Tijuana to Canada. We're literally going to cross two borders during our tour. So hopefully we can see you on our way. Holy moly, that's so amazing. Well, thank you everybody out there for listening and thank you again, Laurel. And I just, I'm just so excited. Yay, go resistance, go ladies. Mm -hmm, Forever. All of the things, forever (laughs) and ever. Right on, so much love to you, Morgan, you're the best. Love you, bye. bye.